Hey everyone, welcome to the stories that brought you here. It's the podcast dedicated to the stories of the people from Pender Island, British Columbia. My name is Chris Wokluk and I'll be your host and I will be sitting down in one-on-one hour-long conversations with people from this amazing island to hear the stories about what brought them to this little island. Also, I'm going to be finding out the stories that brought them to this point in their lives right now. Now, just a little bit of background so everybody understands what this is about. And what this is about is every time I've asked somebody on this island, oh, what brought you to Pender Island? I've always been really amazed at the variety of answers I've heard, and I've always really enjoyed everybody's answers. So I thought, wow, that'd be a pretty interesting idea to have as a show. Secondly, I think that there is an amazing amount of individuals on this island, and everybody has an amazing story to share. So I wanted to help facilitate that. And for those of us who live on the island right now, I think hearing the stories of some strangers or neighbors or people that we already think we know, to hear more stories about their lives will just give us a deeper appreciation of others and hopefully a deeper appreciation of ourselves. Now, my first guest I'll be speaking with is Kelly Irving. Now, most of you might know Kelly as the pretty jovial man who works at the government liquor store or also by his yearly art show he has at the winery. But in this interview, we're going to find out more. And I really hope you enjoy listening because I had a great time interviewing him. Here's my interview with Kelly Irving. Kelly, welcome to the first ever show. Thank you, Chris. Glad to be here. I'm so happy you're here. And this, this isn't the first time you've been in the basement before. We actually had some some projects we did in the basement beforehand. Yes, I uh, I will try not to improvise too much here. I um, I have all my facts and figures memorized. Ask me a question. See if I can give you a straight answer. Okay, fantastic. Well, <laughs> improvise all you want, for sure. So the traditional first question that we're going to start off the program with is, what brought you to Pender Island? My family. Uh, my family, my father's family is from South Pender Island. And my mother is from Saturna Island. And so there was always island, Gulf Islands connection for our family. My father was in the RCMP, so we moved a lot when I was a child. And But we always came, not always, but a lot of the time came to Pender for vacations to visit my dad's family. My mother's family had left Saturna by the time I was born, so I don't really have a Saturna connection, but very strong Pender connection. For years, I had a recurring dream of driving through forest lands on windy roads and this big, magnificent bridge, and uh, I never knew where it came from. And then probably when I was in my 20s, I went to Vancouver on a trip and looked at the Broad Street Bridge and went, wow, that's the bridge from my dreams. And I realized that the dream was based on a memory of coming to Pender when I was a year or so old. Uh, probably a trip to the coast for my uh, mother's father's funeral because I talked to family since then and said, well, what was the earliest I came to Bender? And I think that's where that memory comes from, is driving from Kelowna to Pender. And uh, yeah, so we just came here a lot. um, And I moved here 
I had a summer job at Bedwell Harbor when I was 15, so 1969. And uh, didn't like Bedwell, working at Bedwell much, so I quit that job. Went to what was then Scott Slayer, Port Browning, and worked two summers there. And had pre grew a, a, a more uh, my own connection to Pender rather than a family connection. Made friends with people my age. And uh, when as a kid, we spent most of our time on South Pender, not a lot North Pender. So I came to know North Pender more. Went back to school, I guess. Yeah, went back to school, grade 12, dropped out because we moved a lot. I was just really, my education was discombobulated and um, moved to Pender. Dad had a log cabin it's still there down on Gallon Point. And that was the first place I lived on my own on Pender. And it was pretty amazing living that beach in the winter. Uh, strong southeasters would blow in there. Hear the rocks rolling in the waves. And uh, I just loved it. Uh, went back to Victoria, worked for a couple years. And I came and went from Pender for probably 20 years, I guess, back and forth, depending on work. So that's what brought me to Pender, my family. <laughs> nice. You know, the first thing that stands out to me is talking about uh, the first place you lived on Pender was that at the uh, the very end of the South Island at Gallon Point, because that's an area to me that I find super beautiful and uh, really inspiring when I'm down there. But with your experience of living there when you first arrived on the island, you said that you were just out of grade 12. What age were you roughly? Yeah, I was 17. Wow. And you were living there on your own in that cabin. Mm-hmm. Incredible. So do you have any specific memories at all from, from being that age and living there? Um, well, it was, you know, I was 17. So I was like most 17-year-olds, I guess. I uh, I wanted to socialize, party. <laughs> there wasn't a huge group of people living, young people living on the island at that time. Um, so the winter was pretty quiet. Uh, a lot of time to contemplate. My grandmother lived uh, next door, so I'd go up and see her for showers and Probably one of my biggest regrets in life is that I didn't talk more to my grandmother about uh, stuff that she knew so much about that I only became aware of in later years. Uh, She loved Rachel Carson. My sister told me that she was turned on to Rachel Carson by my grandmother. But at that time, I just had no interest in that. Well, I shouldn't say no interest, but I had some interest in the environment, but I never knew my grandmother did. So I, I regret not having a closer relationship with her. Maybe I was a long-haired young hippie and a lot of older folks in the island, My even my relatives, say uh, couldn't understand that. I was called Goldilocks, kiddingly. <laughs> I worked for my cousin John Spaulding as a, uh, helping him with his garbage service, Spaulding Sanitary Service. That, that stood out in my memory because uh, John was a pretty special guy and we had a lot of fun driving around. It's a great way to see the island, picking up garbage. Picked up some cool stuff along the way people tossed out. And then summer came along and... More of my friends would come and visit friends from Victoria, friends from Edmonton, where I'd lived for a few years before coming here. So high school friends from Edmonton. And I mean, it was the late 60s, early 70s. So, you know, we're young. We probably did a few drugs and uh, that was kind of summertime. <laughs> what was your grandmother's name? Uh, B. Spaulding or B. Freeman. Uh, uh, one time B. Irving. Um she married my grandfather, divorced my grandfather. My dad was quite young, uh, remarried, and then her second husband died. 
She lived most of her life on Pender, uh, some of her life in Vernon. Uh, you talked about one of your biggest regrets was not being able to communicate more with your grandmother about, sorry, did you say Rachel Carlson? Rachel Carson, who wrote um, one of the very first books about what, what's happening to the environment. So it was it was something that you realized later in your life that your grandmother had a keen interest in environmentalism. Yeah, I think it's typical of a lot of, uh, well, me anyway. Uh, you know, I just wasn't aware of um, my older relatives and the wealth and knowledge they had that I could have learned about. I, I was I was a baby in the family, so there's a huge generation gap between me and my sister, brother and sister even, were like 12, 14 years difference. And I, I was... Um, very much the younger person in my family. And I think I was probably a little um, disjointed maybe in family gatherings. I didn't quite fit in with the other generations. I think when you're a teenager, you don't really think about what all those old folks might know. You know, I was busy rebelling against what I saw as their conservative nature. And my father and I would we had great family discussions, arguments over dinner. And my parents were really good that way. My father, despite being in the RCMP, was a very liberal-minded man. And uh, my family has uh, some matey background and and also some connection uh, through another side, family, Coast Salish. So I was always very aware of the uh, native population. Uh, my dad, my grandmother, uh, my dad carved, my grandmother made pottery and jewelry. They knew a lot about native art history. And so I grew up around a lot of that. My dad made sure I saw provincial museum and, and uh, he was good about that. So, and he, he was very um, politically um, aware that a lot of the conservative agenda was not very humanistic, I guess. He was a very humanistic person, I think. That's really interesting what you said, uh, just um, touching back with uh, your grandmother and and, um, the regret that you have. Because just two days ago, I had a conversation with somebody and he asked me, what's your biggest regret in life? And usually my answer is nothing because I wouldn't be where I am if I had changed anything. But I, I felt uh, an answer should be given. And the first thing that came to mind was not listening to the stories that my dad had to offer of his youth before he passed away. It's interesting that you say that in this interview because I think it's a really important thing and timely thing to do to hear the stories of people and their life experiences that they have. But let's get into your father a little bit. So he worked for the RCMP, you said, mm-hmm. and uh, and you moved around a lot. Uh, and so what, what sort of parts of the country did you live in? Well, my father originally didn't join the RCMP, he joined the BC Provincial Police, 1938-39, uh, when he and my mother were first married. When I was born, I think just before I was born, I was born in 1953, 1952 or maybe early 53, the RCMP took over the uh, policing of British Columbia. So the BC Provincial Police was disbanded. And my dad didn't think he would continue on, but they asked him to join the RCMP. So he did. He he was, I think, a sergeant at the time. And I was born in Haney, uh, in the Fraser Valley. And several months after I was born, uh, my dad was transferred to Kelowna. And we spent five years, I guess, roughly in Kelowna. So my earliest memories are Kelowna. 
And then we move Prince Rupert, nine months. Victoria, three years. Prince George, two years. Dauphin, Manitoba, two years. Edmonton, three years. And then he was coming close to retirement. So they moved him back to Victoria because he wanted to retire in Victoria. And um, I left home while he was still working. So what was that experience like growing up and having to move to all sorts of different communities? Because we hear this story sometimes from from your perspective. What was it like living in different communities and moving around? Disruptive. You know, I I think I added it up once um, because curiosity. I went to 13 schools for 13 different grades, I guess, because I I dropped out in grade 12. I ended up going back and doing my adult ed. So including that 13 schools to get my high school diploma, whatever, graduation, matriculation. And traveling into province, it it was really disruptive because – Education programs are different in different provinces. When I lived in Edmonton, by grade 11, I was not taking any sciences or mathematics as in an arts uh, curriculum. I moved back to BC and all of a sudden they were saying, oh, you have to have a language requirement and you have to have this and that. And after a few months, I just went, no, I can't do this. And, And also, I think it was the age I had things I wanted to do other than go to school. And Victoria was so nice and warm in September. And I spent a lot of time not in school. So I kind of screwed myself around there. But there were some good sides too. Uh, We saw a lot of BC, a lot more than a lot of kids my age would have seen because my dad uh, loved driving. So we do summer vacations. And we also sometimes when he had a business trip because he was a fairly senior officer For instance, when we lived in Prince George, he was the commanding officer for Northern BC. So we would drive up to, say, the Yukon border and back down Cassiar was one trip I remember. And we saw the the dam at Hudson Hope when it was being built. So that was kind of neat. I was privileged in a lot of ways to see... um, things that other kids never was seen. And the RCMP have a pretty close connection with armed forces. So if there was an armed forces base nearby, we'd quite often go and um, visit families or take advantage of their recreational setups, film nights, swimming pools, that kind of thing. So it was kind of cool. Uh, I guess all was pretty good until about 1960, mid-60s, you know, and uh, culture got pretty shaken up and I was a teenager and all of a sudden having crew cuts all the time was not like really cool with me. And my dad was pretty strict about that short hair, especially seeing all the other guys growing their hair. He didn't really like that. So there were, there was some rub there. I, I got pretty rebellious by the time I was grade 11, I guess. So by the time you were nicknamed Goldilocks, as you mentioned earlier in the interview, um, how did that play out with the relationship with your father in terms of, okay, dad, I'm rebelling. And how, how did that uh, wind up working? I basically deserted home. I, I ran away from home in grade 12. Uh, I think that upset my parents quite a bit. They tracked me down. It wasn't that hard. I'd gone back to Edmonton to stay with friends. That was when my dad offered me the cabin on South Pender. He said, well, you know, why don't you go live there, do what you want to do kind of thing. My dad and I always got along. I mean, I certainly did a lot of stuff that he didn't agree with. And uh, 
I, I now feel kind of sorry for some of the crap I put my parents through. Very pretty typical, I guess, of kids that age and, and probably uh, kids of my background, military or police backgrounds. I mean, you, you just want to get the hell out of Dodge, you know, grow your hair and have fun. Wasn't it uh, Peter Fonda said, all we want to do is party? I mean, that was kind of where, where <laughs> I was at. And uh, as I grew older, um, you know, my 20s, my dad passed away when I was in my early 30s. And we were developing a closer connection by then for sure. And I, I was really interested in uh, my dad's family history. So we'd have a lot of conversations about that. He'd, he'd tell me stuff that I didn't know about. So it was cool. That's great. You also mentioned that you spent about 20 years uh, moving on and off Pender Island. When came the time and the decision that you were going to uh, be here full time? I don't think there was a decision. Uh, let's see. I, I worked here as a summer uh, when I was a student in the summers. I moved back here, lived in my dad's cabin. That was maybe like a six, nine month thing back to Victoria. And then let's see, um, came here for a few months when uh, I didn't have a home in Victoria. And then I think I was living up north and, uh, you know, brutally cold winter friends wrote to me from Victoria and said, oh, you know, the flowers are popping out. And I moved back down to the coast and moved to Pender. That's right. In 1975, I think. And I had met a woman on Pender and we re-met in Victoria and the two of us moved to Pender and... My dad arranged with Dave Davidson I could live at Roseland, which was pretty amazing because at that time, Roseland was still an operating resort, but they closed it in the winter because the cabins in general weren't insulated, and so they just closed it down. And I think David had a couple bad experiences maybe with people renting in the winter. So we got a cabin, lived there that winter, and decided to get married. So we got married spring, moved off Pender, went up to Port Hardy, worked in liquor store there for a year. We were going to have a child soon. My wife didn't want to have a child in Port Hardy. So we moved back to Victoria and I was having a hard time getting work in Victoria. So once again, my parents helped out and my dad talked to Pender Island Lumber and Freight and they said, oh, we could use them in the lumber yard. So Myself and my young family moved back to Pender, and I lived here for a couple years working for Pender Island Lumber and Freight. And then my marriage was kind of on its ups and downs. We'd separated, and I ended up moving back to Victoria to be with my wife and, by that time, two young children, and spent the next probably eight, nine years in Victoria because I was had a fairly steady job as a truck driver, got laid off. No. First, my wife and I separated again. Uh, family history. <laughs> uh, worked a few more years in Victoria, got laid off, came back to Pender to sort of get a grip on things. Uh, lived in my Volkswagen van down Browning Harbor. And Ronnie Henshaw had me, gave me a job working on his wooden boat for the summer. One of the coolest jobs I had. Amazing to live down Browning Harbor on the beach, basically, in a in a van. Why Why was it so amazing? Oh, just the landscape, the, the beauty of the sun coming up, the entrance of Browning in the summer. 
And by that time, I guess I would have been in my early 30s, separating from my wife is like just being 17 years old, living at Port Browning. You can imagine the pub's right there. I ate at Browning. There was quite a community that drank at Browning in those days. There was always a big table of locals. It was um, it was the hub of activity. I was just trying to sort out what I was going to do next. I grew to love woodwork and working on boats. I thought I might look at a career as a uh, boat right. Then I realized I'm like around six feet tall and pretty heavy and it, working on in tight little spaces and boats can be it can be tight for a person like me. So I had been doing art for years. I'd gone to Victoria College of Art when I was in my early 20s and just kind of did it all the time. And I thought, okay, I'm going to get serious about this. I'm going to go UVic. So I went to UVic, um, got my, uh, my Bachelor of Fine Arts. So I spent the next five years in Victoria. No, four years, sorry. And then... Um, my last summer school, um, I didn't want to go back to a summer job. I'd had the previous three or four years working for Gray Lines, um, basically cleaning buses most of the time. And so got a job with Salish Construction for the summer and decided, hey, I'm going to come back to Pender and commute for my final year of school which was easy enough because in the arts program, you had to put in a certain amount of studio time. And I don't think I had many academic um, subjects that year. I'd done most of them previously. So it was easy for me to commute back and forth. And um, I met a woman. Actually, I'd met her previously, and we ended up living together. So uh, I kind of stuck. That was 1992, and I haven't left. Wow. So I don't think anything really drew me back to Pender. I just came back and I stuck. <laughs> and I got I got a job and I, I, you know, for most of the time I had work. So I think that's a big deal with my earlier years is I'd have work and then work would peter out in the winter and I'd have to go back to Victoria or something would happen. I mean, when you're young, married, and you have two kids, you pretty much have to work full time. Absolutely. So um, I ended up having three kids by time marriage was over. I had three children. And um, so it's a fairly big commitment. Something that you mentioned earlier that I want to touch on is living on uh, Roseland. Because I, I know for uh, myself and other people that we have uh, strong connections to certain parts of this island. And I have a strong connection to Roseland. Every time I go there, I feel the energy is just amazing. It's just uh, crackling with with uh, something very uh, deep there. Can, can you describe more your experience of uh, living in Roseland and just going to bed there every night, basically, and uh, what that meant to you? It was, yeah, it was a very amazing place. Um, Mrs. Rowe was still alive and we lived in a little cabin, which is no longer there. It was torn down. I think there's one similar one still there beside, behind the, the main building where the museum is now. And across from us, across the driveway down from us was the old Rowe home that had had a store in it. And I think the stone steps are still there beside the driveway. And that's where she lived. Mrs. Rowe lived. I never really talked to her too much. Uh, my wife, uh, Cindy, she talked to her a fair bit. And the Davidsons lived there. Dave and Flo, they lived down 
closer to the water and, and behind where the washrooms now are. I don't think their house is there anymore either. They're, the house they lived in at that time was down by the water above where the docks are now. And then the big house was there, but quite dilapidated. And there were a number of cabins, and there were still the cabins out on uh, Row Islet. So it was an amazing place to explore, to hang out. The old cabins were amazing. Uh, they were very uh, bare bones. People would talk about staying there in the summer. You could watch stars through the shingles coming apart on the roof. And we used to... Uh, walk out along um, South Otter Point Road and along the waterfront. At that time, there was uh, still a few little cabins uh, left. And I can't remember if they're all on one property or different properties, but we go exploring and find these trippy old cabins and outhouses were actually in houses because they're built into the house. Um, so no plumbing, but there would be the, the hole in the seat toilet and, and Murphy beds and always funky old cabins. And if we wanted to go shopping or visit my parents, we'd hike up to Roe Lake and then straight through the driftwood through the back way there, which I guess you could still do, but there's now private property and people tend to, you know, fence it or put trees across paths. Sure. So I don't think uh, that's quite as accessible as it was then. And our cat would follow us. That was pretty funny. Our, our fluffy gray cat would follow us all the way, the driftwood, like a little dog, and all the way home. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> what, was your, what was your cat's name? That was Annie. Yeah. Annie. Annie, yeah. the fluffy gray cat. Yeah. yeah. Your, your protector. Yeah. And so it was very cool. It was very idyllic. And um, I think I was collecting unemployment insurance at that time. So I wasn't working much. It was just like the uh, the winter holiday. Yeah. Then we got married and then I had to work because <laughs> the UI ran out. So off to Port Hardy. Yeah. Uh, well, it's it's amazing the uh, different places that you described moving around and living in in BC and having that experience. Uh, you know, just something I was thinking when you were talking about that is that, uh, you know, the upside of having the experience of moving around a lot and going different places is that a lot of people don't get to have that experience. I know that I've made a point of seeing lots of different areas of British Columbia and Canada, and uh, I feel really thankful to have uh, taken the time to have seen that because it's, it's amazing. British Columbia is an amazing place, isn't it? Mm -hmm. And there's still big chunks of British Columbia I haven't seen, and, and Sue and I are currently talking about getting a camper van and spending less time international travel, more time seeing BC and Canada. Uh, there's, I've only been as far east as Winnipeg, except for uh, a one night in Toronto between flights. So I've never seen big chunk of Canada. Yeah, it's it's incredible. And it's so diverse that um, province to province that um, people are totally different. The, the landscape is totally different. Yeah. And then BC itself, it, you could spend, you know, maybe a lifetime exploring different nooks and crannies through mm -hmm. a massive province. And, uh, and, and a lot of people would be entertained by that. So, all right. So you move back to Pender Island. It's uh, the early 90s. Grunge is in full swing. Yeah, yeah, I was, um, yeah, I've been going to UVic and I was still in UVic when I moved back. Um, I really enjoyed my time at UVic. I, I was um, part of the uh, CFUV, the community college radio thing. So this little microphone with the windsock here is very familiar to me. <laughs> uh, I, I love that. Um, 
that whole experience, university experience. Yeah. Let's talk about that. So you worked for the uh, the university radio station. But, uh, any memories stand out from that experience to you? Oh, yeah, lots. Uh, I think I was first, uh, I had a friend who was involved at the radio station. She asked, asked myself and another artist friend if we would do an arts program, an interview program. So, uh, yeah, there was some good times and there were some bad times. The time I lost a cassette tape of somebody's art project. And it just disappeared within like five minutes, and I never did find out what happened to it. And it, this was not a local artist. It was, it was a fairly well-known Canadian artist, and that was deeply embarrassing. So there were times like that. <laughs> I also um, had a job working backstage for sub-productions, the uh, in-house UVic uh, production company that brought acts to UVic. So... Got to meet lots of musicians and uh, performers, uh, fringe performers who come up UVic, and so that was pretty amazing. I just loved all that, and I and I, I was in my thirties, pushing forty by the time I graduated. So I was definitely a mature student, which was probably good because I was pretty focused on what I wanted to do, and and I had a lot of luck. I, I had jobs that were really great, uh, work studies. I worked in the uh, the brand new fine arts computer lab. Um, so I was uh, introduced to Adobe Photoshop when it came out. I had friends that worked in computer departments. So I I got to play with computer gear when it was brand new. So I, that was huge in what followed for me in my life. I mean, there was a few years I didn't use Photoshop, but um, just having that experience and, and discovering that... Um, I think that I'd gone into UVic drawing and uh, painting a bit, and I came out uh, and I'd gone there to take sculpture, and I ended up in photography, and it, it really influenced everything that came after. Yeah, right on. Okay, well, let's delve into that. And actually, it's interesting how you know one thing leads to another in people's lives, and the opportunity to be able to play with. Uh, you know, new software that had you not been in school at that time, you probably wouldn't have had the opportunity mm-hmm. to interact with. So, so how did that impact uh, your future, having the opportunity to, uh, to delve into those things? How did that impact the, uh, the art that you do today? You know, part of going to university, I think no matter what your, your field is, you, you're encouraged to become a critical thinker. And to the research. So that was that was big. I always enjoyed researching projects. And I probably research, I'm probably guilty of research overkill. But um, that was big. When I came out of UVic and moved back to Pender and I was doing photography, I didn't have... I, didn't set up a darkroom in Pender because I knew it would just be uh, really difficult recycling chemicals and stuff. So I did Polaroid photography for a few years and then digital photography came along. And Tim Kemp, who's an engineer, had bought a Kodak digital camera for his work and he, he decided to upgrade and I bought his used Kodak digital camera. And that was huge for me. That, uh, that just completely changed my f- photography. Uh, when I was a film photographer, I tended to uh, snap a lot of photos um, and bulk load films. So I was, I was in that mode of taking a lot of photos and digital photography, of course, frees you up to just shoot all the time because you can just keep going and going. So yeah, that, that was uh, 
big change then. And and I'd had a friend in uh, computer uh, sciences who had introduced me a scanner sometime in the who that would be in the mid eighties, I guess. Um, so I was just fascinated by what you could do with digital images, how you could uh, manipulate them, how you could blow them up, how you could get into detail. And um, I like dark rooms, but uh, I was in a dark room once I almost caught fire and they can be very scary. Actually, I was in a, another situation where a business caught fire next door to me and I had a dark room. That was very scary. Wow, really? So um, I, I embraced digital uh, technology. And uh, once again, uh, my mother was very supportive. Um, I think I'd done some course in web design or something and, wa- and wanted to change uh, what I was doing. And my mother said, okay, you know, she backed me. She, because for a number of years after you, Vic, I just didn't have the money for a computer or a camera or any of that stuff. And uh, my mom helped me out big time. Uh, my parents had not really encouraged my interest in art when I was young. Um, well, my mother had. My mother was a painter, and she made sure I got into art classes. But when I told them in grade 12 I wanted to be an artist, they just said no. <laughs> <laughs> Artists don't make money. Art is a hobby kind of thing, and they discouraged me. And, and after a number of years of just doing it, they accepted the fact that I wasn't – that I was – really interested in it and they threw some support behind me, some financial support, which was big. And, you know, I'm kind of sad to say that uh, that I wasn't always self-sufficient, that uh, I did hit uh, periods of unemployment and periods where I was more interested in, say, traveling than finding work. So, yeah. But really, with, without those experiences, you, you wouldn't be, you know, where you're at today, though, right? No. As the the sum of your life experiences brings you to this point where you're at today, and you know, I, I think that traveling is a pretty amazing experience, and that um, I think the flip side of that is that you'll probably hear a number of people say, "I wish I would have traveled more when I was younger." Well, that was my mom once again. My mother, sometime back in when I I think when I moved back to Pender, and my mother was getting on, and at some point she said to me, "She said, you know, travel. Your father and I waited too late to travel, so." get out there and start traveling. And I hadn't really gone anywhere. I'd traveled around BC a bit in Vancouver Island, but I hadn't gone. And I'd gone down the West Coast a few times. So I hadn't really gone any international traveling. She really said, you should do this now. Well, what was the first uh, international trip that really changed your perspective on uh, on life, let's say? what uh, Where was the first place you went to that uh, really turned things upside down for you? 1997... I'd done fairly well because uh, I, I was hired on the crew that uh, built the hall. I was one of the few paid employees, which is a, a real stroke of luck. And I was working for a fellow, Michael Barnes. We'd built uh, Carl Hampson's uh, barn, his engineering uh, barn there. So I'd had steady work there for a, a while and I'd saved up some money I guess we were laid off in the fall of 97, or maybe I just decided I want to travel. I can't remember. But uh, I took off for uh, Mexico with a friend. I was going to go for a long, long time. It ended up being four months, I think, four or five months. That's a long time. Yeah. It wasn't as long as I initially wanted to go, but it was really good. It was uh, went to Mexico, Guatemala, um, 
touched into Honduras, uh, Belize, and uh, uh, the fellow I was traveling with, we parted company in pretty soon after we arrived in Mexico, went our separate ways. So I think that was probably the first time I'd traveled totally on my own for a long time. So it was really good. Yeah, I learned a lot, saw a lot. Nice. And so traveling on your own, what was that experience like for you? Well, it was pre-internet. So, you know, carrying a lot of guidebooks around, uh, had way too much stuff in my backpack, I think. And I still have a Guatemalan blanket that I'm now amazed I carried it home because it must weigh like 20 pounds. And I was older than a lot of travelers. So it was, it was, it was an interesting experience. Yeah. I had nothing to fall back on. It's like, you know, when you're living Pender, you can fall back on your friends and family, you know, if you live in one place. And, but when you're out there in the world on your own, well, you just, you, and it's like they say, you can't, uh, the valley's not really greener over there because you carry all your own crap with you. So I discovered that some of the stuff that I was blaming on or as living or my job or whatever was totally me. It's, you know, I was packing that around with me. So I think travel's pretty amazing that way. You get to learn something about other people and about yourself at the same time. That's really amazing. The line that you used to describe that there, that uh, the valley is not really greener on the other side because you're still bringing what you have with you on the other side. Mm-hmm. That's that's really profound stuff. And um, yeah, I guess I guess when you have all that time to yourself and you and you do have to be self reliant, I guess that uh, a lot of uh, undeniable truths will will wind up showing themselves, right? Mm-hmm. Nice. I, I've got to touch on this topic because I want to find out more about this. Uh, this mother of yours who uh, helped you out along the way. What uh, what can you tell us about your mom? Yeah, my mom. Um, hmm. My mom passed away in 2007. So she outlived my father by quite a long time, uh, 20 years or so, I guess. And um, uh, my mom came from a pretty different background. She grew up on Saturna. There's a big difference between my my father's family and my mother's family. Uh, uh, you're probably aware of the book, uh, Put That Damn Matic Away by David Spaulding. Oh, okay. No, I'm not. Um, my dad's first cousin, Dave Spaulding, wrote this book a couple of years ago, put that damn old Matic away, which was family history of the Spaulding family in South Pender from Arthur Spaulding up to my dad and cousin Dave's generation. And Dave really doesn't like it when people say, oh, your family, Arthur Spaulding was a, a remittance man. And no, he wasn't. A remittance, remittance man were the younger sons who came out from the UK and were given money by the family to support them in in Canada or wherever they went because there just wasn't room in in the family at home for them anymore. No room in the family business or whatever. There was just too many kids. Get the hell out of the UK, go to the new country, and we'll send you an allowance to help maintain. And um, the Spaulding family, they were, I don't know, they weren't rich, but they weren't poor either. They they had paper mill, I believe. So they had a family business, but uh, Arthur just found uh, it was way too conservative, constricting. So he came to new country and he slogged it out as a farmer in South Pender. My mother's family, her father was and her uncles were remittance men. They came from a wealthy uh, British family and they, I don't know how much allowance they were sent, but... Um, 
they did okay. They were gentlemen farmers. They raised sheep. They played tennis. They go Victoria, play tennis. They were boat people. I find my mother's family history really interesting because they were living on Saturna when there weren't many people on Saturna. There was two or three families, maybe. All the kids had boats from an early, early age. They had to learn to swim. My mother told me when she was, I think, three, she was tossed off the dock and it was sink or swim. Wow, at three. Yeah. Her sister was out salvaging logs in the Georgia Strait when she's 11 and selling them. They just, um, they were rugged. But on the other hand, they had a kind of an easy life too. And so it was her, her father's family. She was from the Payne family and her mother's family were from Maine Island uh, or were living on Maine Island, the Maud family. They were also quite well off English family. Uh, my great grandfather was, uh, he basically ran Queen Victoria's transportation. He was the uh, crown equerry. So at that time, it was all horses. They they came from a fairly privileged background and came out here. And my mom's dad and his brother, when the gold rush took off in the Yukon, they decided they'd go up there. And he took his tux along because he thought, you know, there might be an opportunity to wear a tux in Dawson City. And the story was they were crossing a river and he lost all his luggage except his tux survived. So he arrived <laughs> in Dawson City wearing a tuxedo. Surely standing out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and she had, yeah, it's just a, a really funny family. They still had, my mother even still had a trace of a English accent because they were so kind of isolated and insular. Uh, the you know the accent hung on for a while. This what they call Gulf Islands English accent, and I love that period of history in the Gulf Islands because there were so very few families. There were no ferries between islands, so they just boat between islands and go to dances and parties and weddings and whatever and socialize. So they knew one another. Um, and yeah, I love hearing about that. And there are written and and we were talking earlier about uh, there's an oral history uh, where they recorded some of those pioneers and I just find that really fascinating the lives they lived because on one hand it was really tough Uh, Gulf Islands are not great farmland it's pretty hard scrabble farming that's why sheep are so popular because they're easy easier to raise and there wasn't a lot of fencing at that time. There wasn't much pound laws. And there's a lot of freedom. So, it's, yeah, interesting time. Just to find out some, some more details about your, your mom, what was your mom's first name? Uh, Margaret. Margot. Known as Margot. Yeah. Okay. I think there's a trophy in the uh, Pender Golf Course, a uh, Margot Irving women's golf trophy. She and my dad were heavy into the golf. <laughs> It's so heavy. There's a trophy that she she's has named after. That's awesome. Yeah, right on. So you said that your mom was incredibly helpful in your artistic life underway at a certain period of time in your mm-hmm. life. The other question that I'm going to ask everybody who comes in for an interview as well too is based on help and who on Pender Island has given you help. Well, my mother is my obvious big helper. Oh, lots of people. I, lots of people giving me jobs. Um, um, coming from an island family is being a help because people 
kind of know who I am. Uh, maybe they're shocked when they discover who I really am. But yeah, it's been a lot easier for me than somebody just arriving uh, blind on the island. Uh, I certainly appreciated the time I spent working with law people, uh, uh, Carl Hampson, Mike Barnes, Paul Hampson, uh, Pat Mundy, all these people that hired me, uh, uh, Bill Hansen and, and Ted Bowerman. Because um, when I came back, I ended up spending, I don't know, somewhere around pushing 10 years maybe of doing construction labor. And I was a laborer because I had no experience. So I started at the bottom and never really got beyond that. Um, and that's a big part of Pender life is construction. What work is there on Pender? Really landscaping, construction, service industries. Yeah. So I fell into the construction and, and all those people gave me work. And uh, you know, it was good. Kept me going. I learned a lot. I wouldn't say I could build a house from scratch, but I can sort of muddle my way through my own home renos. So that's been valuable. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. It, those those career options that you mentioned, I guess, have changed slightly in the last like few years with people who are able to work from home. And I, I guess in our community now, we're seeing that there's more people moving to the island who are working from home and have that. But when I came here seven years ago, I don't think that was as prevalent. And certainly the construction and the do-it-yourself mentality that exists on the island really does create the conditions for people to uh, learn some new skills they wouldn't necessarily learn in the city, just mm -hmm. based on the circumstances that we live in. Getting back into your art here, where we kind of left off with that was that you uh, you went to UVic and you got a uh, bachelor's in fine arts. Mm -hmm. And so what uh, what happened after that? Uh, can you pick up the story from there a little bit? And maybe let's just talk about uh, your art and how you create. Sure. Yeah, I guess around the time I, uh, well, when I moved back to Pender, uh, I think probably one of the first things that happened was uh, putting work into the fall fair. And then uh, I was a convener for two or three years of the art section of the fall fair. And... That was uh, a great experience, and uh, Fall Fair is an amazing community event. And I started meeting more of the artists on the island, and a small group of us formed an arts co-op, the Stella Maris Arts Co-op, and we had a little gallery down on the dock at Hope Bay, roughly where Philly's Diner is now, I guess. That section, there was the old warehouse there, and we had a small space in there. I guess university can be kind of a double-edged thing, because previous university, I was probably doing more work, and then I became slightly inhibited by uh, concepts and just getting caught up in concepts and, and being a little gun-shy, maybe. So I was making stuff, but maybe not a whole lot. After I came back from Mexico, 97, 98, the winter trip, and I ended up going off and doing a um, internet design course in Victoria. And that's where my mom stepped in big time and said, okay, if you're going to do this, I'll help you out. And she uh, funded me to buy a computer and enough money that I could get my own business going. And so for the next seven, eight years, I took a stab at graphic design. So my art converged off into a more commercial. And um, I love 
Photoshop. I can sit there at a computer for hours poking at stuff, which can be good and bad for business. <laughs> and uh, the business wasn't entire, entirely successful. Sure, I did lots of websites for people, but I, I'm not a very good businessman. And eventually, it just it wasn't cutting it as far as supporting myself. Back in 99, I met Sue. And in 2000, Sue bought what was then Mowat Point Kayaks, and it became uh, Kayak Pender Island. So she hired me for the summers, so it helped out a lot. I became a kayak guide for seven or eight years in the summers, and I loved that. I'd never kayaked. I'd canoed before that, but I'd never kayaked. And uh, so kayaking became very big in my life. And uh, that helped a lot because I had a good gig in the summer and I did enough in the winter I could get by. Then, What was it about kayaking that you enjoyed so much? Uh, sitting on the water, sitting low in the water. I love the water. I, lo- I love the ocean. I, I feel quite comfortable in a kayak. It took a little while, you know, got used to that kind of motion in the kayak. But I really love kayaking. Um, working with people, meeting people from different places. I can talk. <laughs> I, I discovered I could be a guide. I have enough background on the island, know enough about the island. I could just blab along. If people want to hear about stuff, I could give them information. It was a really fun business. And she made a part of her business thing was she wanted to hire just local kids. And she wanted to hire mostly women because women don't have a lot of opportunity in Pender. So uh, it was a really great crew. And we had a lot of fun. Nice. I, I spent a summer up in the Yukon, half a summer, because things didn't go well in the end being a uh, a canoe guide. Yeah. And so there was a, a small lake out back of where uh, the resort was, and it was literally three feet deep throughout the entire <laughs> lake. And, and you had people coming up on uh, boats from Skagway. And they would catch a ride up and it was an hour of canoeing and an hour of horseback riding and lunch in between. And I'd have to take them out and show them around. We'd see the odd moose or, you know, eagles flying around. But I was, I'd never really been up there before. So I was, I was playing a character actually. I just got a a cowboy hat and Mm. I I played a role. It was uh, really fun to do, but it was great. And it was like, like you say, it was great experiences to meet people. Is there any, um, any times that stand out from guiding in your mind of uh, certain circumstances or people that you met along the way that you remember from that time? Uh, Yeah, there's, uh, there's a few people we met that became, uh, we became friends with. There's a couple from California, haven't seen in the past couple of years, but they come up quite, uh, they came up several summers afterwards. And we'd, even after we didn't have the business, we have enough kayaks ourselves. We go out with them and became pretty good friends. And uh, yeah, it's very cool meeting people that way and just meeting people. That's part of what I love about my job now, working at the liquor store, uh, the socializing. I mean, you don't hang around, talk a lot, but you get to see a lot of people in the day and exchange clothes and a little bit of information. And yeah. Yeah. Keeps, it, keep, it keeps you plugged into the community. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Well, tell us, uh, tell us about Sue. Tell us more about Sue. Oh, Sue. Yes. Uh, that was one of those instances of when I first saw her, I went, wow. Uh, it was like that chemistry that people talk about when you first see somebody and you know. So, um, yeah, we met. Uh, she came to the island because she had friends uh, who had moved here. Uh, Jackie Dandano, who Sue had worked with doing theater, and Jill Moran. And uh, 
So they had moved over here and Sue came over to visit and she came by where I was living um, to help set up for a party, I think, a summer solstice party, maybe. Uh, yeah, that's what it was. A couple of weeks later, we went on a boat trip to the uh, Saturna Lambake, a group of us. I got to talk to Sue more. And yeah, we just ended up um, going camping together, discovered a lot of things that we liked in common. And probably six, seven months later, I ended up moving in with her. She had a, a place right at Otter Bay Marina, uh, the old house. It's still there, but it was sat up above Otter Bay Marina. So her business was at Otter Bay Marina, and we lived close to the marina. So it was that was really good for us. So when when you first met Sue, what you described that it was a uh, an instant uh, connection. Can you tell us more about that? About the, like where exactly that happened? So that uh, the first time that you you saw Sue. Sue's a, a pretty social person. Uh, she's smiley. A lot of people, I mean, she, yeah, she, uh, when we travel, people gravitate towards Sue. She's just a person that's very sociable, friendly, um, happy. So she's easy to talk to. I can be quiet and, um, I'm probably grumpy at times. <laughs> She's just one of the easiest people I've ever known in my life to get along with and super forgiving and, uh, we hit it off and we had some things in common, the love of the outdoors. When I'd gone to Mexico, she'd actually been down there roughly the same time. And we'd both be in Chiapas during the, uh, you know, kind of insurrection there with the Zapatistas at that time. It was a pretty hot time in Chiapas and we both experienced some of the same things traveling. So we had that in common. She uh, had worked in theater quite a bit, and I was involved in solstice theater. So um, she was involved in professional theater, not amateur theater. So there was some overlap there, and and, and she'd worked with Jackie and various other people. So, um, yeah. And so you just mentioned theater in the solstice theater, and, uh, and uh, I think one of the first times we may have met was through theater yeah we we both have some experience with the solstice theater and uh know that you directed a play that you um you wrote as well too uh adapted adapted let's say <laughs> that's a better that's more an accurate way to put it for sure i don't think i can claim to have written the christmas carol <laughs> <laughs> but you could who's who's listening to this that's gonna hear that for sure <laughs> who is charles dickens anyway <laughs> who is this dickens guy Just some 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 old guy who's no longer around but uh, can you tell me a bit more about uh your experience with the the uh, Solstice Theater on Pender Island. Yeah, when I moved to Pender in early summer 92, I was uh, hanging out with Jackie Maine. Jackie Maine and I became an item. Uh, Jackie introduced me to Solstice Theater. I guess the first event was at that time they were doing a annual summer solstice event where they would go to the school grounds, set up a stage, do a short play written by uh, Patrick Brown, who writes for the Island Tides. Patrick would write the script. And I can't remember what it was that summer. It might have been Pender West. They were always fun. They had lots of local references and they had booths set up for food and, and drink. And you know, they were fun events. So I did a poster, a hand-drawn poster that first year. They did a play that winter, Act of the Imagination, and I think I did sound for that. And I started meeting the people in Solstice and I just became involved in 
And true solstice tradition, they got me on the board of directors. They always suck the new people into the board of directors. So after a couple of years, I think I was president for a year or two. And it was, yeah, we did lots of crazy plays and had lots of fun times. I was backstage. I was always working backstage. I think I did a lot of set designs to start with because I'd been involved in amateur theater in Victoria and I'd done set designs. And yeah, just I just hung out. And then at some point, uh, probably the early 2000s when I was doing starting to do my graphic biz, I just said, hey, I got to focus on my art. And, and I kind of drifted away from Solstice for a while and then drifted back. And, is is there a certain memory that stands out from doing a play at all? Uh, anything, any one particular memory that stands out to you from uh, being involved in Solstice? Or? My first time on stage, Steve and uh, Rick, uh, Rick Gogan convinced me. Uh, I had a fear of going on stage. Uh, that's why I worked backstage. I, I just thought if I go on stage, I'll freeze up and I'll be an idiot and I don't want to do that. <laughs> So uh, they convinced me to do, uh, I think it was about a 20-minute skit with them for a, um, there was a, they had a name for them. They were Solstice kind of amateur nights, and they eventually became Solstice showcases. But in the beginning, they were open to the wider community, and people would do poetry or they'd do dance. Uh, and so we did this skit. And I realized with the light shining in my eyes and trying to remember my lines and stuff, I just forgot about the audience. And I, I really enjoyed the experience. So Steve and I, uh, I don't know what it is. We sh we share something on stage that's uh, – I always get tingles when I'm on stage with Steve. It's like this magic and so we did a couple short pieces together. We did a scene from True West. And that was, is just, we just love doing that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of people probably get tingles working with Steve on stage because uh, Steve LaRouche is amazing. He's so comfortable on stage and he can do stuff that I've seen nobody else do. His voice will change. He's... Uh, done, I can't remember the name of the play, but we had to do a whole bunch of different languages. And he just does that. I, I cannot do that kind of stuff. Yeah. I For anybody listening who uh, ever saw the play The Foreigner that uh, Steve was in, I was lucky enough to get to be in that play with him. And uh, Steve had to create a, a made-up language as part of his character during that play. Maybe that's what I'm thinking of that play, yeah. That could be the one. And it was endlessly entertaining to, mm -hmm. uh, to watch his skill and ability and uh, what he's able to do in that. My whole theater thing actually started on Pender. And... This past month, um, there was the article in the Pender Post where um, they asked me to talk about my solstice experience, I guess. And and I, I went back and I remembered it all started on Pender. And it was that crazy summer when uh, my wife had left the island. I was on my own and I'd reverted to being a teenager, was partying a lot Um and we generally closed down the pub. We were there when they uh, they used to do this thing where they had a tape of uh, frogs and they put it on the tape player and crank up the volume until it drove everybody out. 
closing time. So that was us, the half dozen, dozen or so young people. We're probably all in our mid-20s or so. We'd get driven out and we'd, in the summer, we'd inevitably end up at someone else's house carrying on. And somewhere along the line, we came up with this idea that I was going to take a part of Midsummer Night's Dream, rewrite it into modern English, and we were going to do this this play, uh, updated version of Midsummer Night's Dream. There was a woman living on the island, Alicia. She was just broken up with her guy. And we met and we both had this interest in theater. And she said, hey, you direct it and I'll produce it. And we'll do this play. So we, we'd come back to my place and we do these rehearsals. And it was quite a crew. Uh, there were people like Bozo, who a lot of old-time Pender Islanders or remember Bozo or our homegrown Viking. Bozo had a beard down here like ZZ Top, long blonde hair. He's a short, wide guy, famous figure on Pender. I think he was bottom in the play. And I think Rob's story was involved. There's a whole crew of crazy Pender people involved. And then there was a bunch of people who were seriously into theater who thought, hey, this sounds like it might happen. And so they were coming out for it. And for a while, it looked like it was going to happen. And uh, one of the serious people was Bill Deverall's daughter, Tamara. And um, I, I've I've felt so bad <laughs> for what we did to Tamara. We deserted her. Opening night of the, the production, um, Alicia, myself, and her boyfriend, uh, Jack, we... Uh, we deserted. I literally threw my suitcase out the window, jumped out the window. We took off. We took Jack's uh, boat or his parents' boat. I can't remember. We went down Roach Harbor. And I guess they went ahead and um, Tamara's then boyfriend was a magician and he was doing some magic tricks. Apparently, he almost burned my house down, but we were gone. And the next day, we were sitting down at Roach Harbor and we heard tourists or boaters talking about they were coming in they're saying this strange boat out in the water this viking ship with these guys rowing and we're like oh no it's the pender vikings are following us down bozo and the crew of vikings many of whom had been involved in the play decided to follow us to roach harbor and yeah so it was my very sort of first quotation marks theater experience. It was just, <laughs> it is kind of embarrassing to talk about because I do feel very bad for Tamara who, who put a lot into it and we deserted her. Thank God she's gone on to a brilliant career and, in film. And, um, but years later I bumped into Alicia. I was taking some of my art out of a show at Open Space Gallery in Victoria and she was setting up uh, stage managing for a theater company. And she said, hey, come see our show. So I went and saw Heroes, which is written by a Canadian writer. And this, the group was uh, a weird collaborative effort by members, ex-members of the William Head Penitentiary Theater Group, uh, William Head on stage, who had graduated, quotation marks, from William Head and wanted to continue doing theater, some of whom were in UVic, doing theater in UVic, some of whom were just still interested in theater. Uh, 
and a group of UVic students who came out and a bunch of people who were just in theater from the general theater community in Victoria. And I went and saw their show. I went to their cast party. They were one of the craziest groups of people I've ever met in my life. They were an amazing theater group. Uh, uh, the woman who reviewed theater for Monday Magazine at that time, um, she loved them because they were just so off the wall. And I remember we were in a theater competition and, and the judge said, you were the most suntan group here because we were all young. We were all into the outdoors, into having a good time and had a lot of energy. And, uh, yeah, that really hooked me on theater. And, and um, that group lasted a couple of years, I guess. And it wasn't long after that I came back to Pender. And that's, that's how I got hooked on theater. And it was through Pender. It all started on Pender. Just, uh, yeah, there have been some crazy times in Pender. And I have been asked by people like Peter Campbell, the Museum Society, asked me once, do you want write something about your generation on Pender. And I said, really, Peter, no, it's like too embarrassing. <laughs> um, there's too much illegal activity happened that, no, I wouldn't feel comfortable talking about and involving other people in. It's changing times, you know. I mean, uh, I guess we're all typical 20-year-olds and 30-year-olds and, and uh, Pender, small community, I guess small communities kind of in a way, self-police. You know, if you step over the boundary, somebody is going to probably grab you and say, hey, that's not cool. And um, But you can also get away with doing a lot of stuff. And uh, as I grew older, I realized, hey, it's not just the 20-year-olds around here smoking pot. And even my mother, before she passed away, sometime in her late 80s, she said to me, you know, I really wish I'd tried pot. And here we are now, it's becoming legal. But um, there was a lot of drug-fueled times on Pender Island. And uh, maybe that's typical most of BC or maybe not. Maybe it's because it's a funky little community and attracted a lot of hippies in the 60s and 70s. Yeah. For better or worse, here we are. Well, I'm I'm sure as the uh, this show goes on, I'm going to get to hear more stories about you know illegal activities perhaps that took place on Pender and uh, yeah, how much gets edited out and how much gets left in, how much we're willing to talk about. Yeah, <laughs> and and it's interesting. I've heard some hilarious stories of of party nights uh, from decades ago that people had mentioned, and it to me they're just funny stories, and uh, and to the person telling them, they're great memories from their past. And uh, you know, I, I know in, in my past, actually, it was funny. I, I went through a box of photos hundreds, hundreds and hundreds of photos that I decided to go through a few months ago, digging through the basement. And and the reoccurring theme for most of the photos were party nights. <laughs> <laughs> that was when the camera came out. Yep. And, and what's so hilarious is that I don't want any of those pictures anymore. Those pictures are relatively meaningless to me, right? But uh, a vague memory of those nights I like to hang on to and remember. And, uh, you know, for, for better or for worse... Uh, being inebriated and sharing some time with friends can be uh, some of the the greatest nights of your year, mm -hmm. and you know that's a that's a great thing. But um, yeah, I just like to thank you so much for 
also describing the joy that you found through theater and you know that that's interesting that uh you know i'm sure most people wouldn't really necessarily know about or i didn't necessarily know about the passion that you found through pender through finding solstice theater that's that's an incredible thing and it's nice that we have that in the community to be able to give that to people and I, i've i've experienced that i know that i wouldn't have partaken in uh being in a play if it wasn't for being in a small community and sure it's nice that 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 exists Mm -hmm. and it's funny it has existed for so long uh not solstice but in one form or another my my mother told me she remembered going seeing plays uh, on pender um years ago and and i mean when she was a kid you know talking about 1920s or 30s uh People were doing amateur theater to ent- entertain themselves. Nice, and hopefully that goes on, and that doesn't uh, that doesn't slip away. I'd like to give a big thanks to you, Kelly, for coming in and just being vulnerable enough to uh, and open enough to tell some stories about your past and about Pender Island. And and uh, for people listening, I'm so appreciative that uh, Kelly said yes to doing this, and I have other people that say yes to doing this because it's it's a great thing to be able to reminisce about your past, but it's also it can be a very uh, vulnerable experience. And thank you so much for coming in. Oh, and uh, thank you, Chris. Yeah, I'm glad you're doing. I'm I'm glad I'm doing it too. I'm having a great time so far <laughs> doing it. Any anything any lasting words you want to end off with? I'm looking forward to your listening to your future interviews because there's so many things we haven't talked about that I know other people will talk about. Like For- disc golf. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love disc golf. For sure. And and uh I'm gonna you know, an hour doesn't seem like enough time. An hour an hour is definitely not enough time to be able to hear enough of people's stories from their, their past. But uh that's the time frame we're working with right now. And um yeah, I'm curious to hear what other people are gonna have to talk about as mm-hmm. well too. All right. But anyways, uh thank you again, Kelly, and uh anyways, thank you everybody for listening. Well, there you have it. And to end this podcast off in honor of something that Kelly mentioned, I made my way out to Roseland. So I drove along South Otter Bay Road on North Pender Island and went to Roseland National Park, got out of the car, walked down the hill, and I came onto Roe Islet and walked across this rocky little islet that's populated with arbutus and fir and salal and moss and made my way to the very tip where I'm facing west looking out at Salt Spring Island just to my left the sun is slowly going down partially obscured by the cloud off to my right is the ferry terminal the Tawasan ferry just left you can hear the sound of the ocean lapping up against the rock and can feel cool breeze it's about five degrees out right now and I haven't been here for a long time it seems like but it's an incredibly beautiful place. And I'm just sitting on a bench, a white picket bench, that says donated by Pender Island Walking Club, March 2003. Thank you very much for listening, everybody. Until next time.